0: Nobody wants to end up in family court, but if you do, you want an honest, experienced family law attorney by your side to help minimize the stress, mental anguish, and legal costs that divorce and custody matters bring. Welcome to In Your Best Interest. Texas divorce attorney and entrepreneur Justin Sizemore of the Sizemore Law Firm, entrepreneur Andrea Jones, freelance writer Mary Maloney, and guests share insight on what to expect and how to handle family law matters the changing landscape of family law, and living the entrepreneur's life. Now onto the show.
1: In instances where biological parents are out of the picture, or they pose a physical or emotional threat to a child, third parties may want to step in and care for the child. While it isn't unusual for grandparents to seek temporary or permanent custody of a grandchild, aunts, uncles, and siblings also make similar requests. In today's episode of In Your Best Interest, the panel will shed light on how third-party possession and custody requests are handled in Texas.
2: Thanks for joining us for this episode of In Your Best Interest. I'm Mary Maloney, and today, Attorney Justin Sizemore, entrepreneur Andrea Jones, and I will be tackling the topic of third-party possession and custody issues in Texas. So Justin, before we discuss who can petition the court for t- temporary or permanent custody of a child, can you share some insight on the circumstances that would put biological parents at risk for losing custody of their kids here?
3: Sure. So there's there's issues of abandonment, obviously drug and alcohol ab- abuse, substance abuse, uh, family violence. You generally see circumstances where Child Protective Services is engaged in some form or fashion. And, and that, that generally leads you to uh, the emergency protection provisions in the family code uh, that are enumerated to set out uh, when a third party can step in or have standing. Um, there are uh, monthly requirements as far as how long for abandonment in the statute. There are there are there are cases that back up what can, constitutes a serious immediate question it is very challenging as as everyone knows for a third party to step in and those are generally the 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 areas we see so substance abuse physical violence abandonment those are your most common areas uh, that we see in family law
1: can you explain what abandonment means I, I don't think everybody's aware of what that means
3: yeah so the abandonment is not just hey my you know, niece or nephew is living with me and I've been caring for the child alongside. Um, it, is, it is an actual abdication of parental responsibility. The family code has changed over time for how long that provision um, or period, time period occurs. And, you know, obviously if there's immediate danger, the question then becomes, uh, what is this serious immediate question? What rises to the level of that? Um, or what is truly an abdication of parental responsibility? You know, my my niece is living with me. I've been caring for the child. She goes off to work and has her social interactions and doesn't come home uh, for periods of time. Is that does that rise to the level? And 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 my response to that is sometimes. Usually, it is truly a turnover of the parental responsibilities. The enrollment in school. Uh, the taking to and from the doctor, all of the parental decisions have been completely transferred from the third party over into their, what we call someone related within three degrees of consanguinity uh, for the abandonment statute to kick in. So it, like I said, it, it, that can be a really challenging issue because you could have been doing all of the heavy lifting as a cousin, niece, nephew, uh, grandparent. And then all of a sudden, you know, the parent decides they want to step up for the day, uh, or the week, or the month, and and now you're left with this, well, what happens if we revert back to the old, or what if we are reverting back to the old now of me having to do all the heavy lifting and all the caretaking, and so that does become a challenge when you're deciding as both the client and the lawyer um, on when to pull the trigger, because if you, sh- if you fire off the shot too early, uh, before you've reached the level of, abdication of parental responsibility or before it's a serious immediate question, the courts will pour you out. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's it really alienated the relationship. So you don't know what's going on. They generally take the child somewhere else. Um, and you, you, you really lose your ability to care and control for the child.
2: So you touched on, um, the three degrees there and I won't even try to say sanguinity. Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a hard word but in, so you do have to in order to file for custody as a non-parent you have to show that you have standing to file for a lawsuit in the first place in Texas so can you talk a little bit about how that works
3: yeah so the standing and consequent and Mary I know you can spell it uh, it took me a long time to say <laughs> it um, but this the standing issue um, is is one that allows a party to bring a case in the first place. It's no different when we talk about grandparents um, or third parties that are related within three degrees of consanguinity, i.e. aunts, uncles, grandparents, moms, dads. So three degrees of familial separation. Um, stepparents, those issues, that, that gets a little bit more dicey. And, and the goal, I think, from a policy perspective is that to preserve the familial unit, right? So it's the same thing when we talk about presumptions, um, and best interest of children for bio parents. There are some of those um, same connotations when it comes to three degrees of consanguinity so that we keep the family unit intact. You know, Child Protective Services is challenged with the role of looking to the family first because obviously we want to preserve the the natural nature of the familial structure, uh, which can be really challenging. Of course, when you are just one degree out or you're the step, Sibling or step parent or whatever by three degrees of consanguinity, by all intents and purposes. But the statute really carves out that that notion um, so that you don't have a bunch of lawsuits uh, being filed by third parties. And there's there's some real teeth to the the familial structure. Um, it puts burdens not only on the on the parties filing it, but also the protective units that are assigned out there to care for children. So it gives them a guide point to look to the family first. And and that's why when we go back to the standing issue, I think that's why the policymakers came up with this in the first place is, look, we got to have a line drawn in the sand about who can file for best interest of a child and care and control of a child. Because obviously one of the most fundamental constitutional rights that we have is the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And one of those in that enumerated rights is the right to raise your kids as you see fit. Um, and not have some third party giving their opinions of, of as to how that should be done.
2: So, is there ever a situation where a step parent or even like a close friend, say they've been caring for that child? I mean, really doing everything that for that child, and the those the bio parents stepped out of the picture. Is there ever an opportunity for those folks to actually try to get custody or visitation or possession?
3: Yes, it, and it really tracks the the situation when you're dealing with like foster uh, foster children, or scenarios um, where um, a child has been left in the care and control of another for a period of time. You know, when the Department of Family and Protective Services steps in, um, they really have good oversight um, and and a large to a large degree a sense of uh, I don't like to use the word control, but they have a lot of control and power in these situations. And so generally what we see is when a third party is involved or uh, a step family member or something like that, you usually have child protective services involved. I often will advise engaging child protective services because not only do they assist you uh, or they should assist us, not all not all workers do this, by the way. Uh, There's many, many good ones out there, but there's some ones that just, you know, they, they just they are so inundated with with day-to-day emergencies, that it's really hard to um, have them be expected to have the resources to step up in these regards. But once they do, uh, the reason why I engage them is it makes it easier from an evidentiary perspective to show what you need to to the court from an evidence perspective. It makes it easier to have a third party come in and say, hey, we put this safety plan in place and, um, you know, this, this mother or father is not complying Uh, with the safety plan and here's the measures of help that we've offered uh, whether it be substance issues or anger management or you know some type of parenting or psychiatric or psychological services if if you have a third party step in just like when we do with counselors and child custody cases or ad ad litem attorneys or amicus attorneys it's just a lot less of the he said she said and because the burden of proof is so high when you're dealing with not only with three degrees of consanguinity, which is a very, very high burden, uh, when you're dealing with you know the the unrelated adult, it, it is very challenging to show the quote abdication of parental responsibility. You've almost got to have to the degree of like a power of attorney um, where those roles have been completely transferred over to a third party, and that's really hard for people to just kind of lay in limbo land without. Child Protective Services, or somebody stepping in and saying you can do these things, so that's why we see Child Protective Services generally engaged in third parties that are not related by three degrees of consanguinity.
2: So you had you had talked about that presumption on Justin about it being in the best interest of the children, um, specifically that for the biological parents, when possible, to be their conservators of their children. So it's a really tough hurdle for third party third party parties to overcome that hurdle. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works?
3: Yeah, I, I, I have, I, I, we've talked before in some of our blogs about the concept and notion of two of my least favorite family law cases uh, on the planet. Uh, candidly, one of them almost made me switch careers. It was a situation where grandparents and third parties uh, have cared for a child as their own uh, for a long, long period of time. And in the grandparents situation, that case, and I've had them go both directions and they, these cases can change tune in the midst of litigation. But in that situation, the grandparents, uh, they were actually the maternal grandparents. They, they cared for the child for a period of about seven years. And mom was MIA, by the way, they were the maternal. So they were the mother's, uh, grandparents, uh, or mother's parents. And so the dad was starting to get back in the picture a little bit. Um, and they started to let the dad take the child for a period of a month in the summer or so. Um, and then he just decided I'm not going to give him back. Um, so imagine you have a child, you raise as your own for seven years from infancy all the way to a seven year old. And then um, you're trying to do the right thing and get the parents reengaged. And, and dad comes along and says, Hey uh, you know, I'm ready to step up to the mantle. And you may have that feeling like, uh, I, don't, I don't really think that now is the time to do that. Had they consulted with an attorney uh, before that, they would have they would have gotten orders in place that would have at least provided for the return of the children. And in this situation, uh, the courts erred on the side of the parental presumption, meaning that, well, grandparents, since you thought that it was okay for the kids to go with the dad for the month, uh, there's no serious immediate question, no danger. Uh, So, by the way, you have no rights. Um, and I, I just, I, I can't stomach that, you know, these kids were in a situation where, I mean, just by common sense approach, if a child is raised by someone for seven years and you rip that child out of that environment, that in and of itself should create the serious immediate question to the emotional health, safety and welfare of a child. But what we saw here was, no, you have to have the evidence upfront when you file the case and the evidence up front when you file the case has to be put in an affidavit and you have to have third parties step in. And, you know, you haven't been taking the child to counseling and third parties and all this stuff that you need for the affidavit. And you can't just state in there, well, the separation would create the serious immediate question. You have to show the, the significant contact in addition to the serious immediate question. And the significant contact part is pretty easy, but the serious immediate question part is hard. And so when you get back to the burden Uh, I think that when you're looking at the parental presumption back to your question, when you're looking at that parental presumption, it just shows you how strong that parental presumption is and it's gone back and forth, right? The scales have tipped from Troxel, uh, which is a grandparents' rights case, uh, which, you know, where they were starting to, the grandparents were starting to step in and really uh, abuse their uh, authority as a grandparent. And then, you know, it reverts over these possession schedules uh, where you know we're giving third parties uh, possession and access, where they've had that constant contact. But back to that parental presumption, if if you if you are trying to overcome that, the burden is so high uh, that it's really important when you're caring for a child uh, for a period of over a year um, and you're doing all the heavy lifting. It is I can't stress how crucial it is to at at, at that real time moment before. other parties step in or before you're starting to um, use some self-help, as I call it, go consult an attorney and figure out what the rights are and get those locked in early on. And then obviously over time, if that parent steps up and is doing the right thing, then you can can agree to release um, some of the uh, provisions in the order. And candidly, the courts will take them away from you anyway, whether you agree to release them or not, if the parents are doing the right thing.
1: Similar, similar like what we have in in parents having kids and not being married. Similar situation, right? You need to get everything in order just for the potential of something going the wrong way. So for grandparents in this case, you say have a consultation with an attorney once you take custody of the child and have the child with you at least after a year you should
2: get, yeah get and
3: i mean I, I i think it's good if if you're if you're strategically planning you know the familial relationship with with some you know with a your son daughter or whatever and she's trying to get on her feet or he's trying to get on his feet um, you know it's just like when you set up a business or anything else it's important to get things in writing up front so that you know what these issues are because the reason why those two cases that I talked about um, pulled at my heartstrings so much was that there was no plan, and the right thing to do was not to just throw that kid uh, away from the grandparents. But you know, the the other side of that coin is I I expect, and all lawyers I hope expect for the courts to follow the law, and you know, from a legislative standpoint, when they make these laws, there's there's not a lot of grandparents that are up there talking about these issues it's usually um some cases that some lawyers have seen and they're talking with their legislators uh on these issues and you know the other the other situation and not to bounce off topic but that other the other case was where the guy thought he was the father and raised the child as his his own um and come to find out some guy contacts uh the mother on Facebook and says this child has a rare birthmark and now all of a sudden at 3 years old This guy has raised this child as his own. And then you get an amicus attorney stepping in saying, well, parental presumption, best interest of the child. Let's let this other guy come in. And I mean, that's just, it's just unbelievable to most people when they hear these, these horror stories, but I've seen it time and time again in my practice. And these are honestly the cases where I spend the most time up front. You can actually look at our website. There's a, one of the couples that we, we got custody for. Um, I told them in the very beginning, it's not going to happen. Um, and I'm, I'm obviously not psychic, uh, but I told him it's, this is a very, very high burden. And that was an example of a case that changed in the middle of the case. The, the parents really, really made a very bad decision. And then candidly, they came back and made a good one, which is, Hey, we're not the best fit. And that's just really rare for people to be that self-aware. Um, and so, yeah, like Andrea said, it's, it's, critically important to, to at least in the planning phases up front, if you're going to have a child come live with you, uh, to consult the attorney. It's also really important not to fire off that shot uh, with an attorney who doesn't understand what the provisions are prematurely. Um, So really talk through that with them. Okay, what's the plan? When should we file? Why should we wait? If they're not telling you to wait, that's a big red flag. If they're not telling you how to try to reconcile and get the parents on board, that's a big red flag because you want to show that you're supportive. You want to show that you're not going to prevent the parents from having access unless it's a danger or unless there's a really heightened level of scrutiny there. Um, and so, there's a lot of provisions that go in, and that tracks the case law, and that's really important because the statute just says serious, immediate question, right? but it tracks the case law to determine what that is. And those cases get thrown up monthly and you got to know what the new provisions are.
2: So Justin, I wanted to touch on, you know, what the legislature can do, because I know you're very passionate about this and you, and you're discontent with the Texas laws in regard to the third parties. Can you talk about a, a little bit about how you think the laws should be changed to benefit, obviously the kids first, but these third parties that, that really have an interest in the best interest of the children?
3: I, I think at very minimum, I, I do understand completely the concept of wanting to be able to shut down a party from filing a lawsuit. If it's frivolous, you know, we've all heard the, the stories about the McDonald's case and all these other issues that, that come up in civil litigation. And they, they kind of seem to be the hot button issue for tort reform and for changes in the family code and various other areas of law. But the reality is most people don't do the behind the scenes homework and look at what all was involved in these decisions in these case laws and and how they actually come into law. So to answer your question with respect to the family code, what frustrates me immensely about these grandparents cases uh, or third party cases is that you can't, once you file the case, you can't go what we call marshal the evidence afterwards, right? And that makes sense um, just from a fundamental standpoint because you don't want somebody firing off a lawsuit and then going and conducting a bunch of discovery and saying, oh, see, I told you there was a serious problem. Now, they should have that evidence up front before you file the case. But when you're dealing with an issue where you can clearly prove that a child has resided primarily or exclusively uh, with a third party relative, you should at very minimum, in my opinion, be able to have an amicus attorney or an ad litem or a third party come in and provide the the evidence of what the child has done. Um, it, courts don't generally like to put children on the stand and say, hey, well, where do you live? Do you love your mom? Do you love your dad? I mean, that's just not a very comfortable conversation for a child to be involved in. So we allow third parties when you have You know a parent two parents that are separating we allow third parties to come in and help with that on the face of the affidavit in my opinion when you have a a party stating under the penalty of perjury that a child has resided with them and there's been a abdication of parental responsibility you then in my opinion should be allowed or afforded the opportunity for a counselor to or a a child psychologist to come in and interview with the child and figure out what the separation from that child, what the effects of that will be. And some courts will allow that. Some parties do that by agreement without objection. But if you get good lawyers, and I've been on the defense side of this too, right? So where we try to shut down the third parties, if you get in situations where you have good lawyers that know how to shut this down, you just really prevent the evidence from coming before a court. And I don't like any law that prevents evidence from coming before a court. You know, I talked a little bit about Proposition 12 on the medical malpractice side, and I don't do any med mal, so no expert at all on that. Uh, But I, I just don't like situations where you can't provide evidence without having a big pocketbook. And providing experts in a medical malpractice case is why medical malpractice has changed a lot, right? And the same thing with family law, when you start legislating areas that, prevent a, a case from coming to a judge. The judge has remedies for attorney's fees, uh, for summary judgments, and all these things to shut out uh, litigants from frivolous litigation. But when you prevent the ability to get the evidence before a judge that has a detrimental impact on a child without knowing what that is or why that's happening, I just think that's a disservice to children. I think it's a bad example to set for parents that are making very poor decisions. And the the kind of money that these cases cost most people that are literally at the latter stages and lower earning capacity of their life, they just can't afford it. And I'm sitting and there are people go, well, why why don't you just take this pro bono? Well, A, I have to, you know, provide a business and a family practice and and whatnot. And 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 it's it's very challenging to cover the costs of of the expenditures of attorneys and staff and all this to be able to support, you know, our existing clients, um, and I hope someday I'll be able to have enough money where I can do that. But the the long winded way of saying, and we need a better lobby of people that are dealing with these issues. People that go through the hardships of this are the best advocates, and they need to be up at legislature at the legislative level and not at the lawyer complaining level. Well, my lawyer's just this, and he didn't he didn't do a good job, and he's terrible, and all that stuff. It needs to be done at the legislative level and it is being done. It's just there's there's groups out there that even I'm unaware of uh, as far as how I have a voice with the legislature there. Um, and, and hopefully as I as I enter the later stages of my career, that's that's some of my focus and I'll, I'll spend more time on that.
2: So, uh, you know, people would, I'm sure, like to know what the process is. If you are a third party um, and say you are able to prove that you have standing to file a lawsuit, um, either a a SAPSAR, a suit affecting the parent-child relationship or a modification, what do the steps look like in terms of um, that process to try to get possession or conservatorship?
3: so the first step obviously is you you gather the information into i I like to put it in a timeline format because that gets converted into an affidavit and and i think that the best the best way to organize an affidavit is in summary timeline format with dates uh, and date order Um, and that really gets the clients organized in their own mind when you're thinking about the difficulties they've had and so when they get when they get the events in timeline order some of the, some of those incidents will pull out because they're not, um, they don't rise to the level of serious media question. And you don't want, you don't want the nitpicky situations when you're putting it in an affidavit. That's part of the reason why Troxel came along because, you know, Parents are like, well, they they they're feeding the child McDonald's too often, right? And they're they're not uh, they're not exercising the child. Well, I mean, okay. There are there's a lot of situations where kids can be in an environment that maybe somebody can do it better. I'm sure parents can raise my kids better than I do, right? But that that doesn't rise to the level of serious media question. So you get that evidence together in timeline format, that gets converted into an affidavit, and then the affidavit attaches to the petition. The petition brings you to court, and then the court at that point in time will decide whether they sign what's called a TRO um, or temporary restraining order providing a setting for court. Okay, And this is true across the board for property, child issues. It's a very similar path. So the only difference here is the affidavit portion. You really need to spend time up front getting that information together and, and auditing that. Um, so that you're not firing off, like I said, the the shot that doesn't hit the target. And so once you have that together, you go to court, you gather the evidence. You should be doing that while you're writing the affidavit, while you're doing the timeline, because this thing happens in very short form, especially when you take a child away from a, a parent. So the courts will often expedite those hearings. And what that means is your lawyer has to be Johnny on the spot to get all the information and evidence together. And when you get there and you don't have it, they can pour you out. If they say you don't have standing, you're out. So if when we go back to when you get a child in your possession, that's when the planning needs to start gathering that information going forward. From there, then you get temporary orders. And by very definition, especially in these cases where you have third parties uh, or non-relatives caring for a child, the mindset needs to be just like it is with an adoption or just like it is with uh, fostering a child. This is a temporary environment and you've got to get your client's head around that because that's the hardest thing you do um, is tell a client, hey, listen, we've got these temporary orders. They're great, uh, but but they're not permanent. And And the goal is for the parent's reunification. And so often when I hear clients call and they say, well, you know, they've got that uh, vendetta against their child, or you can really sense that there's a lot of animosity and venom. I I often will tell them we're not the right fit for that client, uh, because they end up getting in situations where it doesn't matter what the parent does to get back in the driver's seat. They don't want to allow it. And, and that's where, that's where courts can really drop the hammer on third parties. But then from there, the temporary orders go into place Same process. You've got discovery. You oftentimes will have the other grandparents step in because, well, no, little Johnny's, you know, his parents can't be the one. It's got to be us. So you get in these fights within a fight. And that's why those cases can be really, really acrimonious, really problematic, very emotional, very expensive. So we're very hesitant to fire off that shot unless it's absolutely necessary to protect the best interest of a child.
2: So, you know, looking on the reverse side of it, it sounds like it's I don't really want to say easier, but I guess in a sense it's easier if you are the parent to trying to get your child back from say a third party. Um, can you talk a little bit maybe about some of the circumstances involving those situations um and and what you as an attorney do to help them regain custody of their children?
3: So, when I said earlier that one of Two of my least favorite cases were defending the third party. I also on the other side of that coin on the far end of the spectrum um, my favorite cases are the ones where people rehabilitate um you know when i when I see somebody that's just broken and they you know it, it's it's interesting to me that a lot of these cases the parents that or the grandparents that were originally involved or the third parties. Uh, this didn't just happen overnight. There were a lot of mistakes that were made along the way. And so when I see a grandparent step in or a third party step in and just decide at all costs, there's no chance of healing. There's no chance of rehabilitation. You're going to always be a drug addict. You're going to always be um, you know an abuser or cause emotional distress to a child. When I see that lack of humanity in in people, I love and this is kind of weird, this is my weird thing, but I love getting on the offensive. I, when, when, it's, when it's an aggressive scenario and somebody is doing exactly what we ask them to do and they're rehabilitating, they're making the changes and they're going to treatment, they're going to facilities and they've undergone the things that are necessary um, because I don't want to, I mean, I've said this before, I'm not going to put some child, I'm not going to go just because I'm a lawyer and I represent you go say, hey, it's fine. You're a drug addict. Let's put the, this child in your care. That's not the way it goes. Um, so I'm pretty tough on my clients and, you know, when they, when they do what we need them to do, um, it's awesome. It's, it's really neat to watch that transition. And that's when sometimes you'll see the other party feeling like they're losing and they shouldn't feel that way. They, they may have been wronged. They may have been out a bunch of money. It may be really hard to mend the relationship, but, but when the efforts made and you just have this non-forgiving factor to you. Um, it's really easy, uh, in my opinion, to get on the offensive. And so when the burden of proof is as high as it is, and, and the party does what they're supposed to do, um, and, and you're still stepping in and trying to control the, the narrative and the environment, um, it, that, that's when uh, we step back, we, we, can, we can knock them out. And, and the problem with that is it generally comes with a very burned relationship. And it, it takes a long time to heal that. And I always, Andrea, and I've talked with you, Mary, about the, it takes a village, right? When you start um, killing off—and I use the word "killing off" because when you're cutting off uh, a family member, that's what you're doing. When you start cutting off a family member, what that means is that something so traumatic has happened between that relationship that you can't have that child in that environment anymore. That's taking away of that a, a piece of that child's DNA. Uh, a piece of their child's upbringing that should be a very positive force, but when it is a negative one, you absolutely cut that cancer out. You knock them out and you you kick them out six ways from Sunday. Keep them three states away, in my opinion. And you know when they get that extreme, um, you know sometimes I, I hate to say it, but I I, I, I I've got one really good skill set, and that's this trial courtroom. And I will absolutely expose someone that does that. Um, that's overbearing when you have somebody doing the right thing.
2: So uh, we're getting close time to wrap up here, guys. Um, Any other final thoughts on this topic for today? Andrea, you also have the perspective of speaking with a lot of clients about this topic.
1: Any other thoughts? One thing we didn't touch on is you said very early in the podcast, the misuse of grandparents that they're trying to misuse or misunderstand what grandparents' rights actually are. Can you touch on that? Because as a grandparent, I don't have the right to say, I want to see my grandbabies more because just because I have a bad relationship with my daughter or son or step, whatever, my my um, son-in-law, and they don't allow you to see my child, I don't have a right as a grandparent to say, to go to court and say, I want to see them every Tuesday, right? That's a misuse of that law.
3: Yeah. And I think that. I hope that the goal for both parents and grandparents is to try to heal whatever it is relationally that is creating the need to go pay lawyers a bunch of money to show that you shouldn't be around a child or you should be around a child. I mean, it, it, I hope that all we're doing here is giving people some insight. How do you heal this relationship before we go hire lawyers? I think people try to ex- execute self-help without internal reflection. Uh, all the time and Andrea and I talk behind the scenes about our own families and you know it, it's it's just comforting because I, I think we have a very direct approach based on our life our life circumstances and i i think um, we do a good job here of sharing that uh with our clients but but uh, and our personal experiences i like i like to give those that insight um, because when you are in a situation where you you can't control it um, people get nervous and they go and they do the first thing that um, comes to mind. Usually they get on their internet and they go and see grandparents' rights. My child's not letting me see the kid. This is terrible. This is ridiculous. I'm going to do something about it. And the minute that you start trying to control every aspect of your own environment, it feels like you're just the, what the walls are caving in. And I think that's God's way of saying you ain't got control of this. Right. And so I think it's important uh, to your question, Andrea, to, like, to, to really fundamentally do some internal reflection, put some boundaries up, set the expectation, have the conversation, and then and only then uh, do you start going to a, a lawyer. I love when clients come in and say, hey, we've tried this therapy situation with my kids and their grandkids, and we're not, we're not making any headway here, and now they're just precluding me from being around. The most tragic situations we see it in are when one parent dies. Um, And passes away and then, you know, one, the other party just shuts out the other family members. That's where there's provisions in the family code to allow for some of that visitation and access. But the short answer to your question, just because you want to see your grandchild, um, and you're not being allowed to, that ain't gonna get you there. Um, Or third party next to kin. So it's a really high burden. Uh, you need to l- do some internal reflection. Try to heal it from within. Constantly be doing the nice things. Don't tell them how to parent. Send birthday stuff, but don't don't be overbearing with it. Don't try to put your thumb on that child's head, because at some point they will rebel. And when that child rebels from you, it may be because of you. And when they do that, um, you know you might be shutting out these some of these very important relationships. And I I love. Like I I watched my father-in-law, you know, my parents with my with my kids. It's such a cool thing. I didn't have that growing up. I didn't have good grandparents that were, you know, showing me how to fix stuff and take take them to do things with them. And I love that opportunity. Everyone out there should love that opportunity. But don't don't step on that 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 hornet's nest because you're going to get stung more than you know in this situation.
1: And I think that because I'm a grandparent too. The coolest thing about grandparents is you don't have to raise them. So don't try to raise your grandbabies. That's the coolest thing about being grandparents. You can spoil them. You want more sugar. You don't want to take a nap. Whatever you want to do, you can do all that stuff. And I do the same thing that I hated my mother was doing to my kids. But that's the cool thing about being a grandparent. Let the parents raise the kids. You might disagree in how they raise their kids, but just spoil them and be there for them because that relationship, like you said, is so very different than that of the parent so if you have the opportunity do everything you can to be in your grandkids lives because it's it's just a blessing I mean I love being with my grandbabies and taking them out and doing fun stuff stuff I never did with my kids I would have yelled at my kids and with the grandbabies it's just like oh whatever because I can take them back home and then they go back to their parents and have the sugar rush there so just make sure (laughs) you you are involved in the grandbabies grandbabies lives super super cool
2: I love it. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up, you guys. So if you'd like to contact the Sizemore Law Firm, you can call 817-336-4444 or visit LawyerDFW.com. We also invite you to follow the podcast and share it with friends who might find it helpful. Thanks again for listening in and have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to In Your Best Interest with Texas divorce attorney and entrepreneur Justin Sizemore. The content presented here is provided for information only and should not be construed as legal, tax, or financial advice. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available.